Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. I'm being told to ask you to move in toward one another, uh, to make room for people who are still coming in. Today's the last Sunday of Lent, because next Sunday we get to celebrate resurrection with one another. Uh, And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. If you've been with us, you know that we've been um, exploring the glory of being human. What does it mean for us to be human beings in our world today? And this morning I want to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 1. The writer says this, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in or around the church or Christianity or religion, but one thing I know is as someone who grew up in that world for a long time, there's certain words that people use pretty consistently, so much so they, they lose meaning and you hear people say them and something in you is like, I wonder if they even know what that means. We call this, by the way, language Christianese. Anyone know what I'm talking about? What are some of your favorite Christianese terms? Just shout them out. Saved. Saved. Born again. By the way, one thing I love is people are like, are you born again? And I always love to say, yes, I am. And you do realize that's a feminine image for God, don't you? And they're like, oh, it's really fun. There's lots of feminine images images for God. Nonetheless, okay, say born again. What else? Jesus? Season. Oh, yes. Yes. This is an interesting season we find ourselves in. What else? Hedge of protection. Yes. You know, I was with um, some uh, pastors in Vietnam one time, and one of the things that struck me is like, if we, in all of our comfort, are going to a place we deem dangerous, we're like, 
we really need to pray a hedge of protection around them, as though, like, that we'll be safe. But in most places of the world, in the majority world, where the church is the minority, you know what they say? Let's pray that these individuals will have courage to do whatever it is God's calling them to do. Mm. Let's just take hedge of a protection out for that and multiple other reasons. What about the creepiest one of all? Yes, absolutely. Love on. You know what we're going to do is we're going to go over later, we're going to love on him. I'm like, ah, I just don't know if that means what you think it means. Or it just doesn't, it's just really kind of odd. My favorite one growing up, and when I was in high school, every class began with prayer, and the teacher would stand up and say, are there any prayer requests? And somebody would inevitably raise their hand and say, I have two unspokens, meaning I have unspoken prayer requests. In other words, I'm a high school kid that's done something so shameful, I'm too embarrassed to name it in front of my friends. And there was always the same people that had unspokens, which really made you begin wondering what kind of person they really were. Oh, so many words. Now, one of those words is glory. How many of you have heard, like, we're going to glorify God today? You're like, I, I don't really know what that means. It sounds good. I'm in. But glory. Glory is one of those words that's just thrown around all the time. The glory of God. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. The radiance of his glory. Speaking of Jesus. The radiance of his glory. Now, one of the things that's helpful to keep in mind when you come to the Bible, whether it's Hebrew scriptures or Christian scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, is that every single biblical writer, with the exception of one, was Jewish, which meant their mother tongue was Hebrew. And the reason I point this out is because in the Hebrew world, it's a very ancient language, which means it has very few words compared to a modern language like English. And because it had very few words, it would draw from the same sources to try to explain a lot of different things. And one of the things that I love about Hebrew is it's very concrete. It's a very physical language. They use images and they apply it to something that's less tangible so you can be like, oh, I get what you're talking about. And the Hebrew word for glory is one of those words. The, the, the word in Hebrew is kavod. K-A-V-O-D, kavod, and it simply means heavy or weighty, and it actually comes out of the world of commerce. Now, keep in mind, in the ancient world, the time when the Bible was written, both the Old and New Testaments, it was an agrarian culture, meaning it was a farming culture, which meant that if you had a farm, you would go to the city gates where all of the trading happened to bring your crops and they would weigh the crops so that they could establish a value for what it is that you brought. And if you brought crops that were kavod, heavy, it meant there was abundance. It meant there was a lot. It meant that it was very valuable. It meant that you were going to make a lot of money. And the term kavod eventually began to be something that you would apply to individuals who routinely brought a lot of produce to the markets because these are individuals who had wealth. And if they had wealth, just like in our world today, it meant that they had weight in a, in a certain way. It meant that they had honor, that they had power, that they had dignity. We still use this concept in our minds today, when we talk about like the gravitational force a person has with them, we use the term gravitas. I don't know if you've ever been around or been in a room where there's someone famous, 
But have you noticed that there's a certain gravitational pull that moves toward them? I used to live not far from uh, Empower Field at Mile High, as it's now called. Remember, we used to have a football team called the Broncos? And there was one Sunday I wasn't teaching, and my son was like, Dad, we need to go down to the field at 9 o'clock. We need to go down to the field at 9 o'clock. And finally, I was like, why? The game's not till 2. And he's like, I know, but the players show up early, and if you get close enough, you can get them to sign your jersey or a football. And I was like, so on a Sunday morning... You want me to wake up at 8.30 to go down to, okay, fine. So we did. And it was interesting, if you've ever been there, there's the players parking lot, and then they set up these gates lined with security, and these players get out of their car, and they walk to the locker room. And as they walk, you can see everybody reaching out with markers and jerseys in footballs moving toward them. This is the picture of gravity. The heavier an object is in space-time, the more gravitational pull it creates. When someone has gravitas, even as they're walking from their car into the locker room, they pull someone toward them. This is the picture of glory. This idea that you have weight, that you have gravitas, that people are drawn to you, that people are being pulled toward you wherever you go. This is the image, by the way, the most common image in the Hebrew scriptures applied to God. The glory of God means the gravitational force, the gravitational pull, the gravitas, the weight that God in God's very existence has. The word kavod itself came over time to speak specifically not towards some aspect of God, but towards God's literal, physical, tangible presence. And we see this for the first time in the book of Exodus. When the book of Exodus begins, we learn that the people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, and God comes to a man named Moses and says, I want you to go to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go so they can worship me in the desert. Moses does that. Pharaoh says, no, there's 10 plagues. You can read all about this yourself. And eventually, they end up in the desert. Now, these people have been in Egypt for 430 years, so what they are familiar with is the glory of the Egyptian gods, but they don't know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their ancestors. And so God says, I want you to know that I'm here with you. I want you to feel my presence. And so God tells Moses, in, during the day, I will be present with you in the pillar of a cloud, and at night, I will be present with you in a pillar of fire. And the people of Israel began to refer to this cloud in this fire as the kavod of God, the weight of God, the glory of God. In our English translations, it's referred to as the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord spoke toward presence. Glory means presence. When I say glory, you say glory, glory. Ah, now you got that. That's going to be in your head all day. You know that, right? You're going to be like tucking your kids in later and be like, when I say glory, ah, dang it, Michael. <laughs> glory of the Lord means presence. We see this in Exodus chapter 16. Aaron is speaking to the people and he says this, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. But God is early because while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord or the tangible presence of God appearing in the cloud. Exodus chapter 24, 
The glory of the Lord, the presence of God, settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. The glory of the Lord speaks toward the presence of God. The real, literal, tangible, physical, manifest presence of God. Now, there's a very interesting story about this glory of the Lord in the book of Exodus toward the end of it, because one of the things that we learn is that God says to the people of Israel, hey, I want you to make me a tent so that I can live among you. You are living in tents. I will live in a tent. Call this tent the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this tent of meeting. It's a gathering place. It's the dwelling of God. And so Moses appoints all of the people based on their particular skills and talents to construct the tabernacle. And one day they finally set up this tent of meeting, set up the tabernacle. And this is what we read in Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting Because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord, the tangible presence of God, filled the tabernacle. So when we say like it's tangible and it's physical, it's so real that it actually prohibits Moses from going inside. Now here's what I think is fascinating about this illusion or this uh, story about the tabernacle and God's presence. It seems that Jesus' disciple John, in his gospel, plays with this image a little bit. If you're familiar with the gospel of John, in John chapter 1, John begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. He's speaking here of Jesus, and toward the end of this poem, this hymn that John writes, he says these words, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, the words there, made His dwelling among us, could also be translated this way. He tabernacled among us. That He put on a tent of human skin and bone and said, I'm with you here. That just as the glory of the Lord, the presence of God, filled the tabernacle in the desert, so much so that Moses could not enter, Jesus is a picture of one who fills up human skin and bone with the presence of God. And just as the tabernacle dwelled in the midst of the tents of the people of Israel, Jesus dwelled in our midst here on this earth. That Jesus... The writer says, is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is, in fact, the presence of God, the real, literal, tangible presence of God here on this earth. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, this is all really well and good and a little bit interesting. What does this have to do with us right here, right now, in Denver, Colorado, in 2023? Everything. Yeah, great question. I'm glad you asked. Now, to answer the question, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, back to our first week during our uh, season of teaching in Lent around what does it mean for us 
to have glory. What, is it, what does the glory of being human even mean? In the first week, Dave Newhousel taught on this idea that all human beings are fashioned, are made, are shaped in the image and likeness of God. Now these phrases, image and likeness, this is not like peculiar to or unique to Genesis chapter 1. This actually was a phrase that was used in most ancient civilizations, except that phrase, image and likeness, was reserved specifically for royalty, for kings and for queens. And you actually see this in the way that people of royal descent were named. For example, in Egypt, we know the name King Tut. His real full name is King Tutankhamun which means king who is like the god Amun. He's the image and likeness. In Assyria, their chief god was Ashur, and the sun god was Shamash. And we know through the biblical writings that there was a king in, um, in Assyria named Ashurbanipal, which means the one the creator has created. This idea that he is made in the image and likeness of God. There's Ashur Hadan. My ultimate favorite is Shama Shamu Ukin. Now we hear those names and we think they're a little odd, don't we? Some of you are like, no, I know some, like, some of the coolest people I know name their kids Shama Shama Ukin, right? They wanted to be really original. You ever wondered, like, do ancient people, like, if they heard our names, would they think that's weird? I'm Shama Shama Ukin. I'm Rick. <laughs> Would they be like, Rick? Hmm. Yeah. Short for Richard. There's a lot of other abbreviations of that name that make you laugh even harder, right? Like, Shama Shama Ukin. This is the son of the, or the son of the sun god. This is this idea. It was reserved for royalty. Douglas Gillette, who's a mythologist, talks about this idea and he says, royalty kings and queens and their descendants were always seen as sacred. And they were seen as sacred by the ancient people because they were the ones who embodied the life and the energy of the gods into the world in which they left. Royalty is sacred because they are the embodiment of the gods in this world. We might say they are the presence of the gods in this world. And if they're the presence of the gods in this world, it means that they have weight. They have a gravitational pull. They have gravitas. And if they're the presence of gods in this world and they have weight and they have gravitational pull, that means they have glory. See, in Genesis chapter 1, it just says this, God made humanity in the image and likeness of God. It does not reserve those titles for royalty. It actually says, no, this is true of every human being who has ever lived, is living now, and will ever live in the future. All of us are sacred. All of us have weight and a gravitational pull because all of us are symbols, the images of God in this world. The Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna says, says this very thing. He writes this, all human beings are created in the image of God. Each person bears the stamp of royalty. 
Human beings as the image of God furnishes the added dimension of us being the symbol of God's presence on earth. While humans are not divine, their very existence bears witness to the activity of God in the life of the world. Remember the real, literal, tangible, physical, manifest presence of God in the world is the glory of God. And both mythologists and scholars and historians point out that for us to be the images of God means that we are the symbol of divine presence in this world, which means that there's some sort of glory of God within each of us. Now, if you begin reading through the narrative arc, especially of the Hebrew scriptures, you begin to pick up that this seems to what, have been, what was in God's mind all along. Because God, what we learn, forms the human beings in the garden. And one of the first things he says to them is, hey, I want you to cultivate this place with me. I want you to do what I'm doing in this world. I want you to be a conduit for my life and my energy into this world. This is what it means for you to be image bearers. And as we explored, eventually the human beings fail, as we are wont to do. But God isn't finished. God later comes, we find out in Genesis 12, to a man named Abram, later named Abraham, and he says, I want to bless the entire world through you, Abraham, and your family and your offspring. God says the same thing to his son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob. Jacob and his sons eventually end up in Egypt where the people of Israel are enslaved. And when they are liberated, God comes to them and says, you for me are a treasured possession, which by the way, is royal language. You're my treasured possession and I want all of you to be a priesthood. I want you to reflect me to the world, and I want you to reflect the world and the work of your hands back to me. I want you to be a unique presence in this world that tells everybody that I am, in fact, present with them. And many scholars point to Jesus and say that Jesus is the apex of Israel's story, the one who fully embodies God. Here in this World. This is why Paul refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. This is why the early Christians referred to Jesus in royal terms such as king and lord and savior. All royal words that had been applied to Caesar in Rome. They said, no, this is our king. This is the one who embodies God. Now some of you are sitting here thinking, um... We asked a question about what does this have to do with us in Denver in 2023. I'm not sure you've answered that. Right. Let me attempt to do that now. Jesus, the writers say, is the image of the invisible God, is the radiance of God's glory, glory being the manifest presence of God in this world. They also say that we, as human beings, are the image of God in his image and in his likeness, that we together are the manifest presence of God. And the New Testament writers very, very often talk about how Jesus is the fullest expression of what it means to be human in this world. And it's almost as though they put these two ideas together and say, oh, 
Do you want to know what it looks like to live a full and real and deep and true human life? Do you, as those who bear the divine image, who are made in the likeness of God, want to know what it means to live truly here with your feet planted on the ground as the presence of God in this world? Look at Jesus. Then you'll know. This is why the early followers of Jesus were eventually called Christians, which just means little Jesuses or little Christs. Some say it might have been a derogatory term. Jesus, however, didn't take it to be derogatory because he said to these little Christs, hey, you know what? Someday you're going to do things greater than I did. You're going to do more things. You're going to do better things. As a matter of fact, I have so much confidence in you when my spirit comes into you. I don't even need to be here. It's actually better that I leave because you're going to keep waiting for me to do all the work. No, you go and do the very things you saw me doing in the world, which is the same exact thing God said to the first human beings. That Jesus is recapitulating the story of God and creation and what God has wanted for human beings all along. And he says, do it the way you've seen me do it. The New Testament writers, this is not lost on them. That's why they're calling us, the people of God, things like the temple, as Peter says. You're the temple. Well, in the ancient consciousness, the temple was the place where God dwelled and was a unique meeting place of the heavens, the abode of the gods, and the earth, the abode of human beings. They're saying, you're the temple. What are they saying? You are the presence of God here on this earth. And the presence of God is glory, because when I say glory, you say, right. If we're the temple, that means that God is really, literally, physically present here. Peter also says uh, to, about, uh, to the people of God, you are a royal priesthood. You are sacred in your very existence. You are invited to reflect God to the world and reflect the work of your hands and the world back to God. Why? Because you are an image bearer, and we now know what it looks like to live as an image bearer and in the likeness of God because of Jesus. You, you are a royal priesthood. Another image that Paul uses, which he borrowed actually from the Roman mindset, was this. You are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. What is he saying there? Well, he's saying this. You and all your flesh and bone... You are Jesus in this world right here, right now. All of you together. You are the real, physical, manifested presence of God here and now. This, he says, this is the glory of being human. That we are, in fact, together reflecting God into our world because we are the presence of God living fully human lives and we know how to do that because we can look at the life of Jesus and say, oh, now I understand it. I got an email last week and somebody asked me point blank, what is like Jesus in all of this? Like, What does Jesus have to do with all of it? Is it just like being a good person? Well, if we understand Jesus as one who unlocks some secret code so that we can like be sprung up into the highest heavens, 
then yeah, I guess it would be being good. But if we understand Jesus came to reveal what God looks like in human flesh and said to all of us, now you go and do this. If we understand Jesus as liberator, what he's saying is, I want to liberate you to live the most full human lives on this earth so that you will be able to live into the joy and the beauty and the sacredness of what it really means to be the image and likeness of a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so maybe the question isn't, what is Jesus like, what does he have to do with it? Maybe the question is, well, what do we see in his life? We see someone who is very quick to forgive. Boy, could our world use a group of people who are quick to forgive. Jesus was compassionate. Jesus always moved toward pain, toward suffering. Jesus moved toward uncleanness, which was a big religious no-no. Jesus would have dinner with anyone who invited him to hang out, not just a particular set of people, anyone. Jesus hung out with the rich who exploited the poor, and he hung out with the poor who were exploited by the rich. Jesus hung out with the religious who were condemning the sinners, and he hung out with the sinners who were condemned by the religious. Jesus was a man for all people. Jesus was tender. And I have to assume Jesus had some sort of sense of humor. You know why? Because kids ran to Jesus. If you want to know about somebody's character, just watch how kids are around them. Because that there's some very stern, serious, stoic Jesus who reminds us more of Roy Kent than Ted Lasso, there's no way kids are running to him. I think Jesus probably had a blast with the kids, which is why the disciples are trying to get the kids away from Jesus. Jesus is like, what are you doing? I want to play. Jesus is one who eventually said, you know what? I will do anything for the liberation of others to the extent that I will give my full self away. If you want to know what a full human life looks like, just start reading the Gospels and ask yourself, how did Jesus live and move and have his being in this world? Jesus wanted this for us, which is why he said, go and teach people to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in my name. But perhaps the most compelling thing for me in the way Jesus sent his disciples into the world is that he didn't give them like a series of doctrinal statements and say, make sure everyone knows these. He didn't give a list of preferred behaviors and say, I want you all to agree upon them. He didn't give like really good TED Talks. Jesus gave us a practice. He took some bread and he took some wine. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this whenever you're together so that you remember me and you remember my life. In the words of Richard Rohr, chew on that. It's almost as though Jesus said, keep doing this long enough and you'll get it. Because you're the body of Christ. You are what you consume. Flowing through your veins is your blood, but if you are the body, it's the blood of Christ. When you drink this, recognize what it's asking of you. That in some ways... 
If we're the body of Christ, we're invited in imitation of Jesus to be broken open and to be poured out for our world. No long-winded explanations, just a practice. To remember, as Jesus said, or as Paul said, to proclaim his death, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and to participate in his death. This is why each week at Denver Community Church we say that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it and given thanks, he gave some to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink it, each of you. This is my blood, which represents God's renewed promise for humanity. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the glory of being human is living in the same way Jesus lived. And this is the invitation for all of us, not just to come to the table to remember. Not just to come to the table to proclaim the death of Jesus, but to come to the table to also participate in the life and the death of our King and our Savior. And may you, my brothers and sisters and siblings and friends, may you come now to participate so that you might know the glory of being human. Amen.